0: Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery, back once again with part three of our little overview of the history of Chinese philosophy. Before we get started, uh, let me say there was a lot of heated discussion about a certain matter inside this humble organization. But in the end, my little clique inside the teacup media empire prevailed. Therefore, you might notice that old CHP 97 episode covering the I Ching, produced back in September 2012. Well, it ain't there anymore. Adding yet another gap in the extensive back-catalog numbering system uh, here at the CHP. Not that there's that much new in the history of the I Ching that demands a makeover of the episode, but I thought, since I was putting this whole miniseries together, and because the I Ching is so central to Chinese thought... I decided to freshen up the episode and include it as part of this series on the history of Chinese philosophy. Today we're focusing on the I Ching, the Book of Changes, the Classic of Changes, the Changes by itself. You'll also see it referred to as the Zhou Yi, the Changes of Zhou. Of all the ancient Chinese classics, this one is the most widely read and continues to be read on a daily basis by millions The Book of Odes, the Book of Documents, Shu Jing, Shang Shu, all those others. People keep it in their library, but those volumes don't get taken off the shelf as much as the I Ching. Besides being one of the most published and widely read books on the planet, it's also one of the oldest ever written that's still in existence. Alongside the Old Testament, the I Ching is the oldest book in continuous use since ancient times. Unlike the Old Testament, the I Ching contains no gods, capital or small g, plural or singular. Depending on which expert you listen to, the I Ching is almost 4,000 years old. But everywhere I read, it's more often pegged at 3,000 years old. Well, it wasn't all written at once or by the same person. So how old is the I Ching? Like most of what we know about anything in China from the oldest of olden days, can't say for sure. Of the Wu Jing, the five classics, this is the only work that can be slotted in the metaphysical category. All the other Confucian classics are concerned only with human affairs and the place human beings occupy in the cosmos. With the I Ching, this oldest of the classics, one can argue this is where the beginnings of philosophy can be marked on China's history timeline. Skeptics might scoff at the I Ching, just as secular people might do at religion. It's easy to take one's rational eyes and lack of faith and cast doubt on a book that's filled with words that have no fixed meaning and yet can unlock so many of the mysteries of life and of the universe. However you may look at it, the truth remains. It's still consulted on a daily basis as a guide that teaches you how to live. Its use in Chinese society from the Zhou era all the way into today has been continuous, like I said, by people who came from every class in China. I'm thinking, uh, eh, less people use it today than way back when, but it's still very much in use in all kinds of manifestations. Anyone who has seen a feng shui master do his thing, checking a place out for a client who wants to build something perhaps, The master always has their feng shui compass as one of the main tools. You look closely and you'll see this tool is tied into the Book of Changes in an obvious way. Yet feng shui isn't something specifically discussed in the I Ching. Rice University professor emeritus Richard J. Smith, in his book The I Ching, A Biography, gave some very spot-on remarks about the I Ching that I will quote here and there. He explained it this way, the central preoccupation of the I Ching throughout the imperial era was how to understand the patterns and processes of nature and how to act in harmony with them. End quote. Professor Smith defined nature as Dao, and that to understand the Dao was to understand all the changes around you and in the entire universe. Like the Bible and the Quran, the I Ching, and its mere 4,100 characters and 64 chapters dispenses sound moral advice that someone commoner all the way up to ruler might find relevant to their specific problem or situation, no matter how petty or far-reaching. The Book of Changes is most widely used and viewed as a divination system. That's how the book began its life, but it's way more than that. In its finished and standard form, the I Ching has stood as a comprehensive philosophical treatise on how our lives and everything around us undergoes change. There are no rituals or prayers in the I Ching. You don't read it like a book from start to finish. It's more a work you consult rather than read. The I Ching differs from other forms of divination that try to open the door to the future, to divine comes from the Latin divinare, to foresee or be inspired by God. This was the art of tapping into the divine will or the dal. The I Ching can act as your on-demand vest pocket guide to advise you on a recommended course of action for whatever question you have. And it's concerned only with the present. It won't predict the future. It's not like a deck of tarot cards it will take certain variables into consideration and advise you a course of action to take, or not to take, to arrive at your hoped-for future situation. It doesn't tell you what will happen. It just gives you ways to look at the situation and assist you in making a decision about what's best for you. Richard Wilhelm, who we will discuss more of later, said this to explain the I Ching, quote, It can best be compared to an electrical circuit Reaching into all situations. The circuit only affords the potentiality of lighting. It does not give light. But when contact with a definite situation is established through the questioner, the current is activated and the given situation is illumined. End quote. Let's trace the milestones in the development of the I Ching from its earliest beginnings up to the time in 136 BCE when Emperor Han Wu Di allowed the cement to dry on a final version of the I Ching. I'm telling you, what we ended up with and what the I Ching actually said in its earliest form, no one could say for sure. It's so old. There are a few traditional stories about how the I Ching came about. All have pretty much been dismissed by scholars as not true. But these stories will have to remain standing in as place markers until archaeologists uncover new evidence regarding what actually happened. What is it and where did it come from? Well, as tradition tells the story, it all began with Fuxi. You all might remember Fuxi from CHP episode 60 on the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors, the San Huang Wu Di, the mythical rulers of China during the period of prehistory. He was the first one. Yao and Shun discussed in last episode were part of that group too. Fuxi lived, if he lived at all, that is, from more or less 2953 to 2838 BCE. This is old, more than 2,000 years before Confucius, and still a few centuries before the Egyptian pharaohs would start building the Giza pyramids. This linkage with Fuxi lends even more mystery surrounding this Bronze Age book of divination. So more or less 2800 BCE, Fuxi... In addition to teaching his people about marriage, music, writing, painting, fishing nets, domestication of livestock, and thanks to his sister or wife, Niuwa, the secrets of the silkworm also. And through his own patient observations and from receiving messages from the divine, he was taught the wisdom of the eight trigrams, the Ba Gua. One of the sources used by Xi was the Yellow River map, the Tu. And when you mention the Yellow River map, you always have to mention the Lo Shu, the Lo Shu Square. Both the Yellow River map and the Lo Shu Square are mentioned in the I Ching. Since they were numerological diagrams, tradition says Fu Xi was inspired by them in creating the eight trigrams. I have it on good authority that Yu the Great employed the Yellow River map in his efforts to deal with the two generations of raining and flooding that afflicted China and the world. The Yellow River map and the Luoshu Square are always mentioned in conjunction with each other. When you see the diagrams, they look rather simplistic and unextraordinary, but there's more to it than meets the eye, and they were connected numerologically to the eight trigrams. We just have to take that on faith. Fuxi's divine source wasn't an anthropomorphic divine source. It will be referred to usually as the Tao. Like Moses, who gave his people the Ten Commandments, so Fu Xi gave the Chinese Huaxia people the eight trigrams. Archaeological evidence has indicated that it seems the ancient Shang civilization, based around Anyang and Henan, had already developed an ancient numerology system that worked in consort with their oracle bone divination system and it's believed that this system might have also been an early inspiration for the ba gua the eight trigrams that's the defining symbol of the i ching the eight trigrams ba gua and the 64 hexagrams 64 gua that's how it all began what's a trigram what's a hexagram let's start at the beginning the prefixes tri and hex tell you the numbers three and six are involved. Three and six of what? Well, you're all familiar with yin and yang, the two opposing forces that drive the whole universe. We're going to discuss more about this later, I assure you. Some numerologists love to compare this to a binary code in order to derive all kinds of bar out conclusions. Fu Xi gave us the eight trigrams. Xia Dynasty founder Yu the Great... Some say it was he who took those eight trigrams and turned them into the 64 hexagrams. There's a more popular version that purports the hexagrams were devised and sequentially ordered by Zhou Dynasty founder King Wen, back when he was still called Ji Chang, head of the Ji clan. During the struggle to bring an end to the Shang Dynasty, Qi Chang was captured and imprisoned by the last Shang king, Zhou Xin, mentioned in uh, Part 1, and as the story goes, during Ji Chang's period of incarceration, he devised these so-called sixty-four judgments or guats for each of the sixty-four hexagrams. The next great leap forward for the development of the I Ching, following these sixty-four judgments of King Wen, came the introduction of the individual line statements or youts. These line statements, ranging from two to thirty-two characters in length are attributed to King Wen's son, the Duke of Zhou. The way the hexagrams were all ordered was also attributed to King Wen. This is the so-called King Wen sequence. Later on in the Song, there will be another ordering of the hexagrams, different from King Wen, and this will be called the Fuxi sequence. This is the core text, the 64 hexagrams, the judgments, and the line statements. And we call this, not the I Ching, But the Zhou Yi, the changes of Zhou, the main usage of the Zhou Yi at this most ancient stage was as a divination manual. And the prevailing attitude was that all of reality, as they knew it at that time, could be reduced to the two opposing forces of yin and yang, and all the Dao contained in the universe was represented in those 64 hexagrams and 384 lines made up the hexagrams. Let's talk about these symbols. Trigrams first. There are always three lines in a trigram. Three lines. These lines that are either broken or unbroken. That is to say, either it's an unbroken straight line or it's a line with a break in the middle. If you can't picture that, think of the South Korean flag. You might be familiar with that. It's got the blue and red yin-yang symbol in the center with four trigrams on the top and bottom left and right. These are the four trigrams for heaven, earth, fire, and water. The solid line in a trigram stands for yang, and the broken line stands for yin, yin, and yang. As I said, there are two ways to write the lines, broken or unbroken. And there are three lines, right? So that's two to the third power. Two times two times two equal eight. No matter how you slice it and dice it, there are only eight possible combinations to write these trigrams. These are the sacred eight. Each trigram has a name, a meaning, an attribute, a symbol, as well as a family relationship associated with it. For example, the trigram that has three unbroken lines, one on top of the other. Its name is qian. Its nature is tin or heaven. Its season is summer. And each trigram, or gua, His personality. And this one is creative. The family relationship associated with this gua is father. It stands for the southerly direction. And it has a meaning of expansive energy and the sky. Let's take another one, the li trigram. This one is a solid line on the top and bottom, with a broken line in the middle. This has the nature of fire, the season of spring, personality is clinging, family relationship is the middle daughter, the direction is east, and contains the meaning of rapid movement, radiance, and the sun. A hexagram is created by joining together two trigrams. A hexagram, therefore, is made up of a lower trigram and an upper trigram. Again, if you do the math, Of these eight trigrams, there are eight times eight, or 64 possible ways to join two trigrams of broken and unbroken lines together into a unique hexagram. People who understand the math, which disqualifies me at once, can look at it this way. The first two hexagrams are named qian and kun. They're the two most famous. Why? Because the first one, qian, is six rows of solid lines, pure yang. The second hexagram, kun, is six rows of broken lines, pure yin. The other 62 hexagrams are simply permutations of these two, qian and kun, combined, male, female, unbroken line, broken line. So, 64 hexagrams, these combinations of broken and unbroken lines. Of these hexagrams, there are eight that end up being written the same, no matter you invert them or not. Invert, I mean turn it upside down. For example, qian, the first hexagram, six unbroken lines. You turn it upside down, it's still the same six unbroken lines. There are eight hexagrams like this. No matter how you flip them, they're the same. But the other 56 hexagrams, those can be inverted. Take, for example, the 12th hexagram, p, Three solid lines on top of three broken lines at the bottom. Total six. Now take this P trigram and flip it over. Now the three broken lines at the bottom are on top. And the three unbroken lines that were on top are now in the bottom. This becomes the 11th trigram. Tie. So you got 28 one way plus 28 inverted, like I just explained, plus the eight that never changed no matter what. 28 plus 28 plus eight, equals 64. The key to understanding the yijing is locked up inside these 64 hexagrams. Each hexagram symbolizes a life situation and contains, as I said, a judgment, a guacci for each one. This guacci defines the meaning of the hexagram, which I want to stress is open to interpretation. You might ask five masters and get five different answers. You'll also notice each hexagram has mostly one, but sometimes a two-character name that lets on as to its fundamental symbolism. Let me quote Professor Richard J. Smith again. Quote, The six lines of each hexagram represent a situation in time and space, a field of action with multiple actors and factors, all of which are in constant, dynamic play. The lines, read from bottom to top, represent the evolution of this situation and or the major players involved, quote. And these lines found in the trigrams and hexagrams, what they symbolize are the forces of action and change that goes on all around us constantly. And not just all around you, I mean in the whole universe, the whole grand scheme of things, if you will. You remember way back in that dusty, dry old episode CHP 88 on the oracle bones? Prior to the I Ching, the geomancers who served at the king's court would use oracle bones, ox, scapula, or turtle plastrons, as a medium to tap into the divine and obtain guidance about what to do next. It was a very crude system. When, in the early Zhou, the I Ching came along as this new divination method... Compared to oracle bone prognostication, it was like streaming MP3s compared to 78 RPM records. Had it not been for the next major development, probably we wouldn't be having this conversation. I didn't want to get into this in the last episode. I wanted to save it for this one. This next milestone link in the chain happened around the 3rd century BCE, after Confucius, after Mengzi, with the introduction of the so-called ten wings or shi yi these were ethical commentaries to the hexagrams master kong is given credit for these ten wings by no less an authority than sima qian but these ten wings didn't really appear anywhere till a couple centuries after confucius's death and like the yi jing not all at the same time either or the same person and as i indicated probably not from kong zi either I mentioned at the close of part two that by the time of the Western Han, Confucius was practically a god. So in ascribing these ten wings to a person of this magnitude of sagacity, it really smothered the I Ching in all the gravitas it could possibly dream of. As we in our day look back on the 15-1600s as Such a backward time, in the U.S. anyways. So did these Western Han Chinese look back on the days when Confucius walked the earth. Jeez, man, that was 400 years ago. A lot of changes. The Han Dynasty-educated elites saw themselves as way more sophisticated than their Zhou Dynasty ancestors. Then, as soon as the I Ching was fortified with Confucian ideology, it breathed new life into this old, tired classic. And once this had been done, Confucian thought fused together with the I Ching. The possibilities were endless. It became central to everything, philosophically, that was happening so fast in China. I mentioned last episode, among the activities Confucius buried himself in his last years was the study of the Book of Changes. As tradition tells it, Confucius was a 70-year-old man before he felt he was old enough, mature enough, and wise enough to take on the study of the I Ching. And he lamented in his old age in the Lunyu, the Analects of Confucius, the great sage said, quote, If a hundred years were added to my life, I would give fifty to the study of the I Ching, and might then escape falling into great errors. End quote. The great sage believed this work contained the moral wisdom of the ancients he so revered. In adding these ten wings or commentaries to the I Ching, Confucius also injected a bit of yin and yang and philosophy into the mix and then combined it with the I Ching's cosmology that espoused the fundamental unity of heaven, earth, and humanity. Tian, di, ren. And because now humans were inserted into the cosmological mix, the fundamental unity of Tian, Di, Ren, heaven, earth, and humanity, became central to everything. In the all-important and milestone year of 136 BCE, the 64 hexagrams, the judgments, line statements, and the ten wings, or Confucian commentaries, became the imperially sanctioned official standard text of the I Ching, so this is where the Zhou Yi, the changes of Zhou, thought to have been finalized back in 800 BCE, itself changes and becomes known as the Book of Changes. I know previous to this I've been calling it the I Jing, but it's only here in the Han where it is named for the first time and included into what was grouped together as the Five Classics, the Wu Jing. Throughout this series, we'll be mentioning these five classics, these canons of Chinese ancient philosophy. And henceforth, the I Ching, if you'll indulge me, became a kind of operating system. And this OS was orbited by a multitude of plug-and-play apps that incorporated numerology, astronomy, the seasons, the five elements, the ten celestial stems, the twelve earthly branches, diagrams, and drawings, and Aspects of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism that collectively, ladies and gentlemen, offers limitless interpretive possibilities within the sixty four hexagrams of the Book of Changes that could explain just about anything and everything that could happen in the world, including with your very own self. In nineteen seventy three came the Ma Wang discovery where a totally intact Han Dynasty tomb was unearthed near Changsha in Hunan that had been sealed shut in the 2nd century BCE. I've mentioned this in a couple podcasts. Imagine the delight to these archaeologists when they discovered inside that tomb perfectly preserved copies of the Dao Te Jing and the I Ching, as well as additional commentaries on the I Jing that had not seen the light of day for 21 centuries. So, after all these years, something that had, well, since the time of Han Wu Di at least, been considered a complete and finished document, they learned from these additional texts discovered in 1973, the year Bruce Lee died, that the complete story had still not been told. In addition to that, this Ma Wang discovery of the I Ching ordered the text in a completely different way that had been known before, the way that had been credited to King Wen, and the way the ten wings or commentaries were ordered, were not the same as the version, long accepted as the final one. So in the world of the I Ching, the 1973 Ma Wangdui discovery was a pretty big deal. That's how it is in China. They're still digging things up that turns on its head events that we had always accepted as the official history. This is one example Another example was in 1908, when Luo Chan Yu figured out all those dragon bones excavated in Anyang by Wang Yirong, held the key that later proved the mythical Shang dynasty wasn't so mythical after all. So we can see how prior to the introduction of the Ten Wings, the Yi Jing's role had sort of been limited to that of a high-octane divination manual. With these ethical commentaries injected into the core document, philosophers during the Han period began to view the I Ching as not only a guide to divination, but also as a work that combined moral philosophy with cosmology and numerical speculation. Also, it was by the time of the Han that the I Ching had had time to absorb many... Daoist and Buddhist ideas, and those too also began brazing in the pot. The Ten Wings, and all the commentaries that followed—there were so many written over the centuries—they sought to figure this Tian Di Ren, interrelationship out, heaven-earth-person, or humanity. Because of the built-in flexibility of the I Ching, the commentaries varied greatly as far as what the philosophers thought— scholars would spend hours, days, and even longer just contemplating the mysteries, what-ifs, and maybes of just one single hexagram. In fact, you can bet all 4,000-plus characters contained in the I Ching over the past 3,000 years have been intensely scrutinized down to the subatomic level. Cho Ming's commentaries on the Chunqiu, the Spring and Autumn Annals, is the earliest work that really gave later scholars a better comprehension of the workings of the I Ching. This work uh, was called the Zhuo Zhuan. I've mentioned it before. The first two wings are called the Commentary on the Images. There's also the Commentary on the Judgments. The fifth and sixth wings are the most crucial. They're called the Great Commentary, or Da Zhuan. It uses Confucianism to explain the metaphysics and moral ethics of the I Ching. It attempts to take humankind and all the natural forces in the world and try to tie everything together into one neat little package. Tian, di, ren, heaven, earth, person. How everything is all interrelated. This great commentary is the most referred to of the ten wings. The other uh, wings all deal with different aspects of the I Ching, including how to read the hexagrams. It explained the trigrams this way, quote, Of old, when Fuxi ruled the world, he gazed upward and observed images in the heavens. He gazed about him and observed patterns upon the earth. He observed markings on birds and beasts, how they were adapted to different regions. Close at hand, he drew inspiration from within his own person. Further afield, he drew inspiration from the outside world. Thus, he created the eight trigrams. He made connections with the power of the spirit light. He distinguished the myriad of things according to their essential nature. End quote. Now, the whole idea of yin and yang, or the supreme ultimate, the Taiji symbol, this is all part and parcel of the I Ching. You all know the yin yang symbol. Besides the South Korean flag, it's on a million pieces of art and objects and tattoos. This symbol didn't arrive on the scene until the Song Dynasty. We'll get to that in a uh, later episode when we discuss Zhou Dunyi and the proliferation of these charts and diagrams that became big hits in their day. Let's look at yin yang for a second. Yin symbolizes the shady, secret, dark, lunar, mysterious, cold, hidden, passive, receptive, yielding, cool, soft, and, of course, the feminine gender. Yang, on the other hand, is the opposite of everything yin. With yang, you have clear, bright, solar, hot, illuminated, evident, active, aggressive, controlling, hard, and, of course, the masculine gender. Many other forces are attributed to yin and yang, but the most important thing to know is these are all opposites, working together as one whole single system. Yin is earth. Yang is heaven. The whole world is viewed in the I Ching as a system of interacting opposites. These opposites do not fight each other. Instead, they complement each other and work in consort to bring about change. As I said, the I Ching focuses on the forces of change. Nothing is static. Things change over time. Our task on this earth is to adjust to the circumstances of life as they unfold before us. The I Ching exists just for this reason. By understanding the forces of yin and yang, these mutually dependent opposites, and the forces they have on our life, you can be better prepared to deal with whatever crossroads you come to. The Chinese, like other advanced civilizations, believed numbers, provided the link between humans and how they were developing on this earth, and with the great unknown the supernatural, or or the dull, whatever you want to believe. With mathematics, there were ways to find hidden order and patterns amidst the randomness and disorder of life. Later on, when we get to the Song Dynasty, a lot of far-out theories are going to be made that are intensively numerology-based. It was believed back then, and I guess still today by some people, that spirits, or hidden powers, when they spoke They use the language of numbers. And I'm sure you've all heard that when the day comes when we make contact with aliens from outer space, most likely it will be the language of math that enables us to communicate. I mentioned Richard Wilhelm at the outset of this episode. He was a German Christian missionary, and the person in the West we have most to thank for bringing us the I Ching. Wilhelm was a great champion of the I Ching, He was the one who was primarily responsible for taking the I Ching from the exclusive realm of Chinese and other East Asian cultures and bringing it to a very interested and appreciative Western audience that quickly embraced it. But who influenced Richard Wilhelm? Surely he wasn't the first Westerner to discover the divining powers and philosophy contained in the I Ching. Surely not. We all know Westerners were turning up in China all the time, going back to the olden days. One of those foreigners, a Jesuit, of course, always the Jesuits when we talk about the earliest Western scholarship of Chinese culture, Father Joachim Bouvet. He was one of six French Jesuits who came to China in 1687 on the orders of the Sun King, Louis XIV, to glean through whatever scientific data and intel they could and bring it back to France. Bouvet ended up being appointed as a tutor to the Kangxi Emperor. He became enamored of the I Ching from the start and dedicated himself to somehow, some way, find that linkage between the wisdom contained in the Chinese classics and with the Holy Bible. And he was the earliest of these Jesuits to go to great lengths to unlock the mystery of the I Ching. They kept up their work into the 18th century, and the result was the first Latin translation. The great Scottish sinologist James Legg produced the first English version of the I Ching, among many other translations of the classics. Father Joaquin Bouvet died on John Lennon's birthday, October 9th, in Beijing, in 1730. And that's where he is buried. In his report sent back to Louis XIV, he said of the I Ching, quote, this work contains the principle of all sciences and, put more precisely, it is a fully developed metaphysical system. End quote. It was these Jesuit fathers, like Joachim Bouvet, who got everything started. We discussed this in fair detail in that episode CHP 98 on Ricci, von Bell, and Verbeest. If the Jesuits were going to get some traction with Catholicism in China they had to first find common cultural ground to teach what their religion was all about. So what did they do? They went straight to the five classics and the four books and tried to pry open that door one Chinese character at a time. They may not have gotten everything right, but they had to dig the thankless foundation upon which all other Western scholarship of China could be built. Top of the list for the Jesuits was the main mission convert Chinese to Catholicism. So their focus was all on the philosophy and religion of China. And this is why Bouvet latched onto the I Ching in particular. Bouvet was a numbers man, so he was really able to appreciate some of these far-out numerology-based theories. There were other ancient documents that were pointed to that supported a lot of this speculation and mathematics. From that moment beginning in the late 17th century, Western scholarship of the I Ching was continuous, and you can bet these scholars were always looking over the shoulder of their Chinese colleagues. They had a 2,000-year head start, so there was plenty of accumulated Chinese scholarship and wisdom to glean through. Then later on in the 19th century, Western scholars of China began to realize for the first time how central the I Ching was to so many other aspects of Chinese culture not just cosmology and philosophy. So standing on all these shoulders, Richard Wilhelm, in 1923, began working on his own translation from the archaic classical Chinese of the I Ching into modern German. He was supervised by someone with the pedigree of Confucius himself, someone of the Kong family, who, when the work was completed, gave it the Kung family seal of approval. And coming from a descendant of Confucius was almost as good as getting it from the man himself. And it was later on in 1950 that this work was translated and published into English for the first time. The Book of Changes in the first half of the 20th century was, I guess you could say, not for everybody. I'm guessing it was more of a novelty or a prop someone kept in their parlor or their library. Then came 1961, when another English edition was published. And to lend credibility and attention to this new book of changes, no less a person than Carl Jung himself, the father of analytical psychology and colleague of Sigmund Freud, wrote the preface. C.G. Jung, even in his day with his works on synchronicity, was a pretty well-known and respected chap, He's always mentioned in the same breath with Freud. His preface of this edition of the I Ching was like, I'm not sure how many of you remember, that uh, that Hari Krishna book they used to hand out at airports that had a message from George Harrison printed on the first page and had a signature. Dang, I accepted the book just for that. And in the 1960s, there was a major surge in awareness about Jung's work. And with a celebrity of Carl Jung's stature, Associated with the I Ching, copies flew off the shelves in the West. And unless I'm mistaken, it's been on someone or other's bestseller list ever since. And in many languages, the 1967 edition of the I Ching, the third one, was one of the classics of the hippie culture of the 1960s. In East Asia, however, the Book of Changes wasn't some fad or inspiration for all kinds of recently priced talismans, it was taken much more seriously. When the early emissaries from Korea, Japan, and Vietnam began coming to China in the Han Dynasty, especially during the Silk Road glory years, they brought back everything to their respective countries that they could get their hands on, and they got it right away. They understood as far as what the I Ching and these other Confucian works could do for them and where they came from. And that's how it migrated there, not so much to the West, beyond Tibet. It was mostly these three places in particular that this ideology was embraced, along with this system and way of living. Vietnam isn't China, neither are Korea and Japan. So in bringing these particular aspects of Chinese culture into their worlds, they had to take the raw material from China and... Whittle around the edges and process it a little. Adjust it here and there and make it fit better with their own culture. This is true not only for the I Ching, but for Confucianism, Taoism, and Chinese Buddhism. How do people in their everyday lives use the I Ching? How do you determine the hexagram that was meant for your situation? There are a number of ways people engage the I Ching. The old-fashioned, traditional way, like they did back in ancient times, was to use the stems or stalks of the yarrow plant, Achillea milfolia, to generate the six lines of your special hexagram. But around the Tang Dynasty, a new method was introduced that remains the most popular way to generate a hexagram. This is the three-coins method, heads and tails. You toss three coins six times to get your hexagram. Each toss of the coins gives you a number. Heads are worth three, and tails are worth two. Three heads, for example, three plus three plus three, equal nine. And then there's a corresponding line that goes with these numbers, always straight or broken. Mathematically, using three coins that could only have two outcomes each means you're either going to get a six or a nine, or a seven or an eight. Six equals old yin, changing. Eight is yin, unchanging. Seven is young yang unchanging. And nine is yang, changing. This method is a lot simpler than the yarrow stocks, and if you're going to try it out, I recommend this uh, three coins method. Straight line is called a dark line, or the yang line. The broken line is the light line, also called the yin line. Light or dark, straight or broken, yin or yang, one on top of the other to build six rows. Start at the bottom. There are no accidents in life or dumb luck. Anyone who, at any time in their life, felt things happen for a reason can't argue that when three coins fall, tails, tails, heads, that straight line that is associated with that specific number, no one could say that was purely an accident. This process is called cleromancy. This is where you cast lots, like rolling dice, casting yarrow sticks, or three coins. And the outcome is determined by some higher power, like the will of God. Anyone who has been to, I don't know, say Wong Tai Sin Temple in Hong Kong, or, or any Taoist temple for that matter, has seen an example of this kind of practice. If you're shaking strips of bamboo out of a cup with messages on them, and one of those strips of bamboo drops out of your cup, it didn't fall out on accident. Some unseen force chose that specific strip and caused it to fall out. It's really this simple. But like everything with the I Ching, simple, but not so simple. Once you generate your special hexagram, one of 64, you know, by tossing the coins, you then consult the text of the I Ching, and it gives you a line-by-line analysis of the hexagram and reveals the situation, always from the bottom line to the top line. You read that. You get your answer or advice, whatever you want to call it. But once again, you have to be careful how you interpret it or who you have interpreted for you. This isn't like taking a slip of paper out of a fortune cookie. It's slightly more complicated. Some of these I Ching masters in China, quite renowned, and get paid tens of thousands of dollars to come in and do some jobs. Some of you might be shaking your head and thinking, what has this all got to do with tapping into the unseen forces all around us? No one from Missouri is going to believe this, but this is the thing. Yeah, it's tossing three coins, and who cares? Could be dimes, nickels, quarters, euros, or Norwegian krona, as long as all three coins are the same you got to believe and be in the right frame of mind. The way I see it, well, if it didn't work and was all a bunch of theoretical BS, how did it last 3,000 years like it did? There's a reason. Okay, let's put the bookmark in right here. Confucius wished he had at least 50 years to study this great work, so I hope you don't think I was going to be able to cut it all up and package it up for you in this... 40-something minute podcast, I encourage you all to go check it out for yourself and see if any of the almost 3,000 years or so of wisdom can enrich your life. You can't believe how many people swear by it, and not just in the Chinese-speaking world. Okay, part four next week, and we'll pick up where we left off last episode with the passing of Confucius in 479 B.C.E., And if you'll permit me to use the royal we, we'll focus on Mengzi, Mozi, Xunzi, and maybe a few more philosophers. We'll see how far we can take it before the buzzer rings. You haven't heard the last of the I Ching? It's going to be popping up here and there, especially as we spotlight several Han and Song philosophers. From Los Angeles, once again, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing you all the very best Join me next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, everyone.